Great. So the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at our series of uh, songs for the journey. There we are, songs for the journey. And we're halfway through our journey of this series. And we've been looking at how these songs are the songs of ascent, which means they were singing as the Old, Testament's belie- Old Testament believers were traveling up from where they live to Jerusalem, which was on a hill, so they're ascending up. But as they were singing, they were to encourage themselves to ascend their hearts as they themselves were being ascended. And we felt that, isn't it, how singing together really does lift you up in a way which just speaking wouldn't. And we've looked how uh, the past two songs have been kind of like an encouragement for the journey. But our psalm today, Psalm 130, is more of a psalm of a journey. It is a song for the journey, but interestingly, it's a song of a journey. It starts in one place, and by the end, it's in a completely another place. It's, it's, and the two couldn't be further apart. It's a song of the journey from the depths. This believer is crying to the Lord. And by the end, it couldn't be further from where it started. It's full of assurance. It's full of hope. And it's full of sharing the love of the Lord. So it's kind of a picture of coming from despair to hope. And it's coming from kind of darkness to light, from isolation to being in a community. It's all these different pictures where they're just in stark contrast with one another. That we can't not say that this is a song of a journey and a very epic journey. And it goes through various stages as well. It goes through from the depths and then there's another step where he cries for mercy. And then there's a step of forgiveness. And then there's a step which leads to reverent service. That leads on to eagerly waiting for the Lord. And then that leads to sharing the hope that they've personally had with others. And that leads to full assurance. So we see this progression as well. So it's not just two stages. There's various steps along the way. And each step we see God's grace in it. God's grace. And what I mean by that is because of God's love, his character, he helps us. That's what grace is. It's the Lord's help, which we don't deserve, but because he loves us, he lavishes it on us. Each step of the way, it's God's grace that that moves us along and moves this singer along as well. So it begins in the depths, in the depths, out of the depths. I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. It's an amazingly poetic phrase, isn't it? Out of the depths. But it's kind of pregnant, full of biblical imagery as well, because the depths might seem gloomy to us, who are modern-day believers, but what this is conjuring up in the, the minds of the Old Testament is the depths is like the abyss it's like the, the sea or the, the formless void before creation even happened. The depths are these kind of dark and watery, hellish, chaotic depths. That's the kind of biblical picture. Think of Jonah. It's a favorite kind of story that you get taught when you're a child. 
And Jonah ran away from the Lord. He got given a task to go and preach to Nineveh. Um, But he ran away from the presence of the Lord. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. And he was running away from the Lord. He got on a ship to try and get away. And then, of course, the Lord threw a storm at the ship they was on. And this tempest was roaring around the ship. And the sailors just couldn't work it out. It was odd to them why this horrendous, horrendous storm was happening. But of course, Jonah knew it's because the Lord was angry. The Lord was angry that he was running away. And Jonah said that if you throw me into the the waters, if you throw me into the sea, then you'll be saved. And so the sailors didn't want to do that. But as a last resort, they did. And Jonah plummeted into the depths. That's where this psalmist is. He's... He's in the same kind of situation that Jonah was in. And you think, he calls to the Lord from there? It's a bizarre place to call, isn't it? Because as soon as Jonah would have hit that water, he would have been no more to the sailors on the ship. He'd be out of sight, out of earshot. They wouldn't know where he's gone. If Jonah were to call to them, they they wouldn't know, would they? In the deepest recesses of the sea which in biblical pictures is kind of this hellish chaotic place full of darkness and full of evil as well who can hear your cry when you're in that situation who can hear your cry well the amazing thing is that for Jonah when he prayed the Lord heard him and so the psalmist here this singer using this extreme poetic language is similar. It's to say, I'm in this situation which is so far away from God, it hurts. And yet, there's nowhere that the Lord won't hear me. From this place, I can still cry to the Lord, Lord, hear my voice. It's an amazing thing that no matter where we go, no matter what situation we're in, The Lord will always hear our cry. He will. Maybe you need to hear that today as well. I don't know whether the busyness of September has kicked in or whether it's more serious things in life which are catching up with you. And it can feel hellish around you. Or even in your situation, no matter what situation you're in, the Lord will hear your cry. And this is the start of our journey. This is the start of this journey in the psalm. And out of the depths, this singer cries to the Lord. He cries to the Lord who is love, who is faithful, who is the great I am, the eternal God, the one true and living God. He is the one who will hear. And so he cries to him. He says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. That moves us on to the next step. We see that it's a cry for mercy. This shows us something about what, he's, what this person is experiencing in the depths. Is it just he's in the middle of the ocean and they're in need of help? Well, we see here that it's, it's more of a spiritual 
case, isn't it? That's where the depths are. That's where they're feeling it. They're in need of mercy. And so it feels like they're in the depths of the ocean with darkness around them. Because they cry for mercy. And then they recognize in verse 3, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? If, If the Lord kept a record of sins, who could stand? It's an extreme uh, thought, isn't it? To think that the Lord, he knows everything. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Do you ever do do something and you surprise yourself when you've done it? You think, I didn't know that that was in me. Or I didn't think I was like that. And yet, I did that. And it goes to show that we don't know ourselves, do we? We don't know what's in us. And yet, the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. And if he kept a record of sins, who could stand? Who could stand? A while ago, I don't know whether they're still going, but on YouTube there is a bit of a fad of having these cameras that you'd wear around your neck, and you'd wear it 24 hours of the day, and you'd take it wherever you go, And it would record everything that you do. Everywhere you went, everything you see, everything, every person that you meet, and it would see. And then on YouTube, they'd speed it up. So you didn't have to just, it'd be like the Truman Show, wouldn't it? If if that's all, you'd just be sat there wasting your time watching someone else waste their time. But they'd speed it up so you could watch someone's like a, a year in the life of this person in a matter of something like... I don't know, 20 minutes or so. And it's really quite fascinating to see. Obviously, they're going to cut bits out. They can edit it because they've got power over that. But if there was a record of our whole lives, that would be scary, wouldn't it? If I couldn't snip out the bad bits of my life and then we're all going to sit here and watch watch what I've done in the last week, I'd be out the door like no one's business. I'll see you later. It's a scary thought to be known, truly. And yet, the Lord does. Because it's a question in this psalm, isn't it? If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But in other places of the Bible, in Revelation, for instance, it says that there is a record kept of everything and every, every thought, every motive that people have done. It says, on judgment day, there will be a judgment day when the Lord returns and books are opened. That's the term that's used. Books are opened and people are judged according to their deeds. It makes me feel undone when I think about that. It makes me feel I can't stand. My knees buckle at the thought of thinking, that's my future. If the Lord was to just look at the record of my life and judge me accordingly, I wouldn't be able to stand. And so, this psalmist, likewise, he cries out for mercy. He recognizes no one could stand if that were the case. Absolutely no one. Humanity would be all on a level. No one. Because even the good things that we think that we do The Lord sees the heart. 
He knows our hidden intentions, which aren't always right. But the next step, so this acknowledgement of mercy, of acknowledgement of the need of mercy, moves to this great thought, this great truth, that with the Lord is forgiveness. If the Lord kept a record of sins, nobody would stand. Nobody. But the good news is that with you, with the Lord, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. That's such a relieving truth, isn't it? And this psalmist, when he's feeling like he's surrounded with chaos, with this burden of guilt, maybe, of the wrong things that he's done, when he's confronted with the holiness of the living God, and he thinks, I cannot stand, I need mercy. He's going to feel anxious. He's going to feel afraid. And what a relief it will be when he says to himself or says to the Lord, but with you there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Although my sins are like scarlet, although I'm stained with all the wrong things that I've done, there is forgiveness. It's as if the slate can be wiped clean. You can be received into the presence of the Lord. You can stand because there is forgiveness with the Lord. Going back to the passage in Revelation, when the books are opened, amazingly, another book is opened. Another book is opened, as well as all the other books. And that one book is called the Book of the Lamb. The Book of the Lamb. Or the Book of Life is other... Uh, is referred to as well. And these are written, all the names who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb of God. That is to say that they are, they are forgiven because of Jesus Christ, who is called the Lamb of God, because he was killed for sinners. He was killed so that people can be taken out of the book which um, condemns them and that they can be written into the book of life where they're saved, where they're forgiven and where there's relief, where there's life. So what a relief. That's a giant step, isn't it? And again, it's all out of the Lord's mercy. We don't deserve this, do we? All that we can bring it to God ever is our own sin, it's our problems. We can't bring anything good to the relationship. But it's all on the Lord's part, it's all out of his goodness that he reaches down to us. He says, have my son for your sins. He will carry them, he will take the punishment for them, and you can be written into his book and have life in him. You can be forgiven as if you had done nothing wrong. It's not just, it's not just forgiven in a sense of uh, the slate is wiped clean so you can mess it up again. It's an ongoing forgiveness. It's like a fountain which is always bringing forth more and more forgiveness. So the mercy is there every day because we need it every day. 
It shows just how good the Lord is, doesn't it? But every day he's for you, constant, loving you. And this shows us the next step as well. Because forgiveness leads on to something. You're, just not, you're not just saved into a limbo of kind of nothingness, of just doing whatever you want. The good news is that you're, you're saved, you're forgiven into you a life with the Lord. It's not that the Lord brings you out of the depths to send you away from him again. He brings you out of the depths for, for you, for us, to be with him. Amazingly. So in verse 4 it says, But with you there is forgiveness. What a relief. So that we can, with reverence, serve you. This is what we're forgiven for. In some translations it says, So that we can fear you. It's the fear of the Lord. And that's the beginning of wisdom. But it seems like quite an outdated term, doesn't it? To say, fear of the Lord. Isn't that for for dusty old churches with people, with men in dresses, preaching in the pulpit? Well, it's it's actually a, a very useful term to think of the fear of the Lord. Because however much fear we had of judgment before, when we felt condemned, when we cried out for mercy. We're to be more fearful, if anything, once we're forgiven. But it's transformed into a different kind of fear. So it's no longer fear of judgment, but it's, it's an awe. It's singing, how wonderful, how marvelous is this love. It's, it's that fear of, can this be true? How awesome is this God? It's full of reverence and respect to say, you would do this for me? It's that kind of reverence, this fear of the Lord. And it's reverent service as well. We're we're forgiven to serve the Lord. Now, whenever we see uh, in the Bible... Things like we're to serve the Lord. We can come at it with our mindset in kind of work mode, can't we? We've just, most of us, I suppose, have been working uh, during the week. And working is hard. And working, uh, we work for wages, don't we? We work to be paid at the end of the month or whenever. And when we read, we're to serve the Lord, we're forgiven so that we can serve this. Is this just the case of the Lord being this big business manager who thought it would be a good idea to buy some servants for himself to do his bidding. It's quite an ugly picture of God, isn't it? Well, it's not. It's not like that at all because we've seen, first and foremost, how the Lord has served us, how he has given everything for us. So it's not that it's all us giving, giving, giving to God. It's that the Lord has loved us. He has given us his son, given us everything. And so we can have forgiveness. And it's an amazing thing that we can, just in gratitude and thankfulness, serve him in the little, feeble ways and yet beautiful ways that we do. By looking in Jesus in faith and saying, 
I'll put aside my own interests. And from now on, I'll serve the Lord. I no longer serve myself. I respect the Lord with reverence. And I serve him from now on. And what's that mean? It means that we serve each other as well. It comes to my mind in uh, 1 John in the New Testament. If we say that we love God, but we hate our brother, then we lie. Because we can't see God and we say we love him. And yet we can see our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we should love each other. So this is our service. The wonderful service we've, we've heard and been uh, privileged to have. The musicians play. The service of the teas and coffees. But more so the service of each other. You talking to each other. Encouraging one another. Chatting to one another. Praying for one another. Speaking God's word into each other's lives. Helping in practical ways. Serving each other. All this is reverent service to the Lord. This is what we're forgiven for. The next step of grace that the Lord helps us along with is having entered into this relationship with the Lord where we serve him, is it means we wait for the Lord. We wait. It's a funny thing to say in a psalm of ascent, isn't it? When you're on your way, it's the last thing you'd be thinking of doing, isn't it? Of waiting around. I've been listening on audiobook to Pilgrim's Progress, which is a song of a journey. It's a great read. I think, uh, yeah, Aline was just telling me about how she was reading it as well. Um, and it's, in a way, it's fantastic for this series because it's, it's, it is this journey from uh, the depths and going to the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. It's all pictured, and it's all kind of what we've been looking at in the Psalms of Sent, this journey to Jerusalem. Um, and Christian, the main, the main guy in the Pilgrim's Progress, he really beats himself up about waiting, being lazy. And it's written in a different time and a different context, but he really does beat himself up with waiting a while. And we think if we're really eager to carrying on our walk with the Lord, to know him more with our faces set to the heaven, to meet uh, with the Lord. If that's where we're heading, is it foolishness to wait? Surely it would be. Well, in this instance, it just shows in kind of poetic language, again, how it's not through our work that we get the blessings of God. Because we wait for the Lord, and he comes to us. He comes to us. As Christians, we are waiting people. But so were the Old Testament believers. They were especially waiting people. Because their faith was in the Messiah who was to come, who was pictured and promised in so many different ways in the Old Testament scriptures that we can read of. And they were waiting for this one who would be born of a woman who would save uh, God's people from their sin. So they were waiting for the Messiah. Messiah is another word for Christ. It means anointed one. Um, so they were waiting for this Messiah. And of course, 
we look back on what they were waiting for and we can see the fulfillment of that. We can see how it actually happened, what they were waiting for. Because the Messiah who they were waiting for was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ, the anointed one. It was him who was there waiting for. He was who all of God's people had their faith in, who were waiting for. And it's amazing how we still are awaiting people. Although Jesus has come and he has saved us from sin because he has died on the cross in the place of humanity. And he has risen again to bring in the new creation, this new life that through faith we can join him in simply by trusting in him. So we can look back on the fulfillment of that, but of course Jesus has ascended to heaven. He now he is alive and he sits at the right hand of the Father. But of course one day he will come again. And so again, as God's people, we are awaiting people. And so we can, we can really acknowledge where this psalmist is coming from, can't we? We, can, we know what it is to be awaiting people. But it's, it's an extreme waiting, isn't it? It says, my whole being waits. And in, in his word, I put my hope. Now, I don't know what you're waiting for. We're all waiting for something um, with the next thing, isn't it? And the next thing. I, uh, I play a bit of guitar. And when I was a teenager, I ordered a guitar off um, I think it was eBay or something, and it was a pretty terrible guitar, to be honest. Um, but I kind of looked at all the pictures, and it looked beautiful to me. And I ordered it, and tell you what, I was waiting with my whole being. I don't know whether you've ever done this, but where you just you can't sit still. All your mind is occupied by is just when will this come? It says that it's going to come on Friday. It's going to say this, and then of course. With the postal service, it arrives kind of a day, well, half a day after that you expect it to come. But you're there on the edge of your seat. The doorbell goes. And you think, is that it? Is that it? Just eagerly expecting it for uh, it to come at any moment. Yeah, it, it absorbs all your thoughts. It, it's kind of what you talk about to each other, isn't it? I would have been such a boring person, well, maybe a more boring person to speak to that week because all I would have t- spoken about is just how great this guitar is going to be, what it looks like, and it looks exactly like Jimmy Page's. And all that. It didn't. It was a complete rip-off. But, um, yeah, I actually had a recurring dream that week because my mind was so on it. I was dreaming about this guitar. But it's this picture how... We are waiting for the Lord. This Old Testament believer, you've all seen how crazy I am now, I'm sorry. But, um, but it shows how, how obsessed this Old Testament believer was looking forward to the promised Messiah. This one who would redeem God's people. And so it is that it should be with us how we should be waiting with our whole being, completely enamored with this future hope of the Messiah returning to redeem our bodies, to save us fully. And we know that the uh, psalmist is this eager because he himself uses this illustration. He says, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen 
wait for the morning. And he repeats it, more than watchmen, wait for the morning. I don't think he'd repeat it if it wasn't important for us to, to get into our minds. It's a beautiful saying, isn't it? More than watchmen, wait for the morning. But again, it takes us back to the depths, doesn't it? In the dark, where they're going to be uh, surrounded by the darkness. And I don't know what context he's going to have his mind at, where these watchmen are. But there could be dangers around. There could be dangers from enemies coming or from wild beasts or whatever it may be. But these watchmen are standing guard. And they're going to be so eager. Yes, so they can go off duty and have a, have a kip and it will be a big relief. But also with the morning comes safety, comes relief and comes hope. But again, it's another thing about this illustration is they're going to be looking eagerly for the morning. But it's interesting how he uses an illustration that is certain and it's set an appointed time. How the watchmen aren't going to be umming and ahhing about whether the morning is going to come this time. Whether this is just night's going to stretch on for eternity. Of course, the watchmen, they know the morning will come. The morning will come. And so it's not an empty hope, but it's a full and certain hope. So it's a very apt image that this psalmist uses to encourage us. And so the psalmist says that we are awaiting people. We are awaiting people. And the next step of grace is how after eagerly waiting, having this life, you want to share it with others. It spreads from a personal faith to spreading out to the connections that you have with people around you. And in this instance, it goes from just in one individual to a nation. He, he proclaims to the whole nation, Israel, God's people, put your hope in the Lord. It's like I was saying about me chatting nonsense about my guitar all the time. This, uh, this singer, he, he goes from his personal individual faith to saying, Israel, all of God's people, put your hope in the Lord. And that's the, that should be the case, isn't it? It should be an, an overflowing thankfulness that comes out of our lives. That we, don't have to, that we don't have to tell people about Jesus. Have you ever thought about, you don't have to tell people about Jesus. But you get to tell people about Jesus. If you think about just how great uh, the works that God has done for you how constant his love is, then how, how, how his goodness is just always flowing into your life. It's going to spill out of your life, isn't it? In thankfulness, in gratitude, and in the conversations that we have day by day. Not as a burden, but out of reverent service, part of it is going to be just chatting to people about the goodness of God in our lives about our waiting for the Lord eagerly expecting him so it spreads out and there's reasons as well for this in verse 7 for with the Lord is unfailing love 
and with him is full redemption. And then the last verse, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And this brings us to the climax, as it were, of this, where right from the depths we've come up, 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 up to full assurance where there's no longer isolation, no longer darkness, but there's only light and a view of God's beauty and goodness. Because you see that with the Lord, there is unfailing love. You see, our love fails all the time, doesn't it? I know that mine certainly does. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I know I shouldn't do, that's the very thing I often do. There's good things that I know that I should do, but I don't have the means to do it. There's things that I wish wouldn't be the case, but I don't have the resources to help with. But you see, the Lord has with him unfailing love, love that never fails. And also with him is full redemption, full redemption. Redemption is a very Christian-y term, isn't it? Um, and what it basically means is to be bought, to be redeemed. So if you have a voucher, I don't know, for one of the, one of the restaurants here, you can redeem it and you could have the meal that's worth that voucher. It's getting your money's worth for whatever it is. So it's buying it back, the value of it. And with the Lord is full redemption. In those two words is complete and utter assurance. Because we can so easily lapse into thinking that Jesus helps us so far and then we need to put in the rest. But that would say with the Lord is half redemption and we need to top it up. But that's not the case. It says here with, with the Lord is full redemption. Flowing out of this unfailing love is utter, complete purchase of our lives. That's what it means. And how is this? How is he to redeem his people? He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And again, it just, it's so complete an assurance. Because the Lord isn't just this high and mighty medieval king figure who just dispenses with some stuff to buy his people back. He doesn't just fling a pouch of gold to buy some grotty slaves. He gives himself for us. He himself, the most precious thing. God the Father gave his most precious thing, his son, for us. And of course, the person who wrote this was looking forward to the time when the Messiah would come, who is the Lord himself who is the word become flesh, who is God become like us. And when he was born like us, he took our sins, the weight of the world's sins, onto him. And he was doing this for us. And he carried our sin to the cross where he dealt with it, where he died for it. That was where the purchase was made. That was where he died, where his blood bought our lives. 
And because he is God himself, because he is unfailing love, it is full redemption. In that one act of love, when the Son of God hung on that cross, that is full redemption. If you look in faith to that one event, you'll be completely and utterly saved, utterly from all your sins. We can sometimes look to other places for assurance, can't we? We can look for, I don't know, look to our works, uh, look for the good things that we do, look for some kind of peace in our own heart. We can look inwardly at ourselves and look for assurance. But here, the real assurance comes when we look out of ourselves, when we look at the center of history where the Son of God died for us, where he bought us from our sins. He purchased, purchased, I can't say, purchased us from the depths. That's where our assurance comes. There's no assurance in here. It's all on him. It's all on him. So it's an amazing journey, isn't it? And this is a journey from the depths to the heights where we don't just do it once in our lives, do we? Because it does pattern becoming a Christian in a way where you are kind of away from God, out of his presence, and you need to cry to him for mercy, for forgiveness, all because of Jesus. And then you can have full assurance. But this isn't just a one-off thing at all, because time and time again, in so many different ways, we're going to feel like we're in the depths. We're constantly in need of the Lord's mercy. And we're constantly in need of looking back to the cross. That is where we're to wait until he comes again. So I wonder where you are on this journey. Whether there's a particular position that you said, actually, that's where I am. And that's where I'd like to be heading. As I said, it's all God's grace. It's all God's help. 